My name is Jonathan, and I get to be one of the pastors here. And if we've not met, just a little bit about myself. First of all, I'm one of the lucky ones that was able to marry way, way up uh, to my wife, Andy. She was leading worship up here just a few moments ago. She's incredible. And uh, together we have two incredible kids. Um, They are unstoppable. They are squirmy and hilarious and talkative, and they love people. Eric, he just turned four, my, my daughter Peyton. Another pretty poignant fact about myself that maybe you would have learned uh, by now if you know me, but if you don't, it's that I was born and raised in the great state of Texas. Any other Texans in the house? Yeah. (laughs) You're like, oh no, not one of these guys. We know the Texans. I was born and raised in Texas, but a lot of people think that it's blasphemous when I tell them that I made my way north to the state of Oklahoma to go to school. I went to the University of Oklahoma, Boomer, Hey, there's a few Sooners out there. I appreciate that. I went to the University of Oklahoma. And here's the one thing that these two states have in common. It's that football is life. In Texas and Oklahoma, football is life. And when I went to the University of Oklahoma, that first semester, I lived right across the street from the football stadium. Yeah, so on Friday nights, right before game day, people would start rolling in and they'd start setting up shop in the, in the apartment complex parking lot where I lived. Literally trucks, they'd have their tents, their tailgates, their living rooms, you name it, their big screen TVs, I kid you not, projectors, the whole deal was set up every single Friday night to the point where I could not leave for two days. The entire city of Norman shut down for two days because football is life. Anybody ever been to a football game? Yeah, it's different, right? Like watching it on TV is fun, but when you actually get to go to the game, you step into that stadium, there's 80,000 people or whatever it is, and they're all going nuts. Half of them are wearing one color. The other half of the people there are wearing a different color. One, One side is chanting one thing, the other side's chanting another. And you're watching this game play out, and it's crazy. There's marching bands, and there's people doing flips up in the air, and acrobats, and fireworks, and shows, and concerts, and loud sounds, and everything is so incredible. You know the feeling? Maybe you've been to a game where you're like in the fourth quarter and it's like crunch time, right? The, the game is tied, high stakes. You're in the end zone, your team is in the end zone and the quarterback snaps the ball and he runs back and he fake pumps it and then he hands it off to your star running back. He runs through the line and bam, he gets laid out. People are just piled on top of him, pile, 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 and they start to disperse. They go back to their huddles, and there you see your star running back laying flat on his back, and he's not moving. And just like that, the air gets sucked out of that stadium. Anybody know what I'm talking about? See, the reality is, is that our lives are a lot like this, that we are like that running back, that in life we will get knocked down. We've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. The reality, the question is not, will we fall? The question is when we're gonna fall. And the reality is that there are two sides that are looking at this fall, watching and waiting to see what we're gonna do. There's one side that secretly is hoping that you stay down, right? I hope he stays down because if he gets back up, he might run down the field, he might score, we might lose this game. I hope that he stays down. But then there's another side just cheering and hoping and praying, asking the question, is he okay? 
Did he break his leg? Did he break his arm? Is he gonna get back up? There's a lot riding on this question. And I make this point because I think so often in life, we, it's so easy for us to think that what we do in our life, the choices that we make, the decision to get back up or to just stay down, it doesn't have any real value or real importance. But the reality is that all of the heavenlies in the spiritual realm, they're all looking at you to see what you will do next. This is good versus evil. This is dark versus light. This is heaven versus hell. It is a big deal what we do next, will we get back up? Charles Spurgeon, he encapsulates this perfectly when he says, consider how precious a soul when both God and the devil are after it. Consider how precious you must be if the God of all creation is after you, is pursuing you, and so is the devil. So last week, Pastor Scott talked about the advocate that we have in Jesus, right? We read out of 1 John 2, it says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, if anyone does fall, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. We have somebody that's on our team. We've got a coach on the sideline that's calling our name and cheering us on and reaching his hand out to pull us back up when we fall. And if this were the end of the story, it would be great news because it'd be real easy to get back up, right? Like we fall, we mess up, there's God, his loving hand is outstretched, his grace is there, he pulls us back up, easy peasy. But if the reality is this, I don't know about you as we've been talking about this over the past couple weeks, sometimes when we fall down, it's really hard to get back up. It's not easy. It can be really difficult. Why? Because we don't just have an advocate, we also have an enemy his name is Satan, which actually means accuser. We have an advocate, but we also have an accuser. So the message today is called the advocate versus the accuser. We see this instance, we see an illustration of how this plays itself out in the book of Zechariah. Now Zechariah was a prophet and God would speak to him through, through visions and dreams. And they actually get pretty wild. So if you're ever bored on a Friday night, just sit down and read the book of Zechariah and you'll get the same dramatic effect of watching like Inception or something. It's like wild stuff that Zechariah sees. But the vision that I want us to look at today is one that's found in chapter three. And here we find Joshua. Joshua is the high priest of Israel, okay? Which is important because it means he's like the top dog. He's the leader of God's people. And in this vision, he's standing before the advocate and the accuser. He's standing before God and he's standing before Satan, almost like in a courtroom. There's the prosecutor and there's the defense. And he's standing there symbolically wearing the sins of Israel in the form of dirty clothes. So he's standing in this courtroom before God and Satan, advocate, accuser, wearing the sins of Israel, the sins of God's people. And that's where we pick it up. In chapter three, verse one, it says, then the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Joshua. Accusations. 
He's pointing his finger. He's pointing his finger at the dirt on his clothes and saying, look at everything that you've done wrong. Look at everything that God's people has done wrong. He's saying this to God saying, condemn them. He's, they're guilty. Look at all of the sins. Look at all of the missteps. Look at all the fall. Anybody ever been there before? You have somebody that's accusing you. They're like pointing their finger at you saying, I can't believe you did that. You did this, you did that. How come you can't be more like this? I can't believe you are such a hypocrite. You see, this vision is a, it's a picture of the way that the accuser works. He points his finger in efforts that we might begin to believe that our identity is nothing more than the summation of our mistakes, of our failures, of our fall. Everything that we've done wrong in our past, the accuser wants to point those things out to you over and over and over again because he wants you to believe that you are that thing, that you are a failure, that you are a bad mother, you are a bad father. Why? Why is he so adamant to get you to believe that you are just as much as your mistakes? Because he knows that if he can get you to believe it, he can get you to become it. If he can get you to believe it, he can get you to become it. Now listen, I am privy to the psychology world. As I mentioned before, I'm married way up in life and my um, beautiful bride is a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist. She owns her own private practice. She knows a lot about the mind. And oftentimes I'll look at her and I'll just say that you're a wonderful counselor. Come on, anybody love some old CCM, some old Christian music? Come on now. I'll do stuff like that often and she'll look at me, roll her eyes and be like, you need serious help. And I said, that's why I married you. <laughs> anyway, I'm up to speed on some things in the psychology world and there's a phenomenon in psychology that's called the self-fulfilling prophecy. You ever heard of this? The self-fulfilling prophecy up on the screen behind me, I'm gonna show you the self-fulfilling prophecy loop. And this is the way that it works. First of all, it's defined as it, it, the self-fulfilling prophecy is a belief about a future event that leads people to act in a certain way that ultimately brings about the expected outcome, right? So you believe something which informs your behavior, which then will lead to the expected outcome, which then just confirms what you believed in the first place and round and round you go. Psychologists will also call this a feedback loop. Anybody ever experienced this? I've experienced it quite a few times in my life. First time I ever experienced it, I was going into the fourth grade and I was homeschooled up until this point. God bless my mother. I'm one of five children and she homeschooled all of us. I don't know how that was even physically possible, but she did so until the fourth grade when she was offered a job at this really nice private Christian school and we all got to go to the school. So I'm going to school for the first time and it's this really like academically advanced school. And so I'm feeling a little insecure about it. I'm going in like, I've never been to school before. I don't know if I'm gonna be up to speed. Anyway, we get there and make matters worse. I quickly found out that a majority of the kids that went to this school, they went to another school after that school. So after they left school, like all the normal people, then they went to another school where they continued to have extracurricular assignments and tutoring, and they kept working on their homework and everything else. So these kids are like, super sharp, like the smartest of the smartest kids. And there I am walking in already with my predisposition insecurity that I'm not gonna maybe be as far along as I thought. And I'll never forget, I, um, I went into math class 
And I sat there and the teacher got up to, he got up to the chalkboard. Yes, it was a chalkboard, real chalk, it was green. <laughs> Starts writing, well, the, the invisible denominator times the divisional division of the multiplicate number goes over here and then you divide that by the, and the, anybody know the answer? And all the hands shoot up. Meanwhile, this is me. Huh? What? And all the hands are going up all across the room. These kids knew the answer. Every single one of them. They're like, me, 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 me. And they were pointing them out and saying, they were giving the answers, all this stuff. And my mind was just blown. And I had the belief, I can't do this. I'm not smart enough for this. I am bad at math. So that began to influence my behavior. When I came home, what did I avoid like the plague? Math. I wanted nothing to do with it. So when test time came around about a week later, I filled the thing out as like 20 questions, turned it in, not feeling super great about it, but you know, I'm like, I gave it my best. Two days later, the teacher starts making the rounds and he's passing the tests back out. You know this moment, it's traumatizing for a lot of us. And I'm doing one of these, I'm like, what did everybody get? Look left, 100, great work, huh, suck up, right? Oh, 97, great work. Oh, well done, great. 96, 90, A, A, A plus, great work. You're awesome, you're the best. And then the teacher comes to my desk and puts my test face down. <laughs> it's a bad sign. The test comes back face down, it's bad news. So I did the little peel the corner back and just take a, take a look at what it was and you'll never believe, or maybe you will, what I saw. Zero. Zero, goose egg, nothing, nada. I had heard about kids getting zeros on tests, but it's because they were rebellious and they didn't fill the thing out at all. They just turned it in, empty Scantron, nothing. They went and did their own thing and they got a zero. But I got a zero after I filled out every single one of the 20 questions, I showed my work and everything and missed every single one, zero. What did that do? confirm my belief that I am very bad at math and I can't do this. So all the way through college, I was terrible at math. <laughs> Maybe you've experienced this in your life. Maybe you've walked through something like this. You just think, I am a bad mother because I blew up on my kids. I'm a bad father because I wasn't there for them. I, I missed the game. I'm a bad business leader. You have another fight with your spouse and you believe I've got just a bad marriage and we're not gonna make it. Well, what does that do? That informs some behavior. If you're believing that, you're probably not gonna work on the marriage, which ultimately is gonna lead to an even worse marriage, which is gonna confirm the fact that you had in the first place, the idea, the belief you had in the first place that I have a bad marriage and I don't know if we're gonna make it. What do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves held down by this crippling feedback loop? We have to silence the voice of the accuser and we have to amplify the voice of the advocate. We have to silence the voice of the accuser that's pointing out all these things that's trying to get you to believe something so you can become something. And we have to advocate the, or amplify the voice of the advocate which speaks truth. Aren't you so thankful that you have an advocate? Aren't you so thankful that you don't just have one side? Let's pick this up in Zechariah 3 and just see what the advocate has to say. So there we are, 
accuser, advocate, Joshua's in the middle. The accuser's pointing his finger at all the sin, all the mess ups of God's people. And what does the Lord say? And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that's been snatched from the fire, which just means a stick would be consumed, but he's been pulled out of it. I've saved him. Joshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins. And now I'm giving you these fine new clothes. What does God do? He completely removes the basis of the accusations in the first place. Anything that the accuser is saying, everything he's pointing his finger at, the dirt on the clothes, he's taking it completely away so that those accusations have no place to land in the first place. Do you know what's wild about this vision? It was given before Jesus came in the first place. Long before Jesus came and died on the cross and made everything right, we're given this vision, which means it's a revelation to us about God's heart towards us as his people. It's a revelation about the way that God has planned to save us and to get us back up all along. Then Jesus comes and we find out that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Proverbs 24 says that the righteous man falls seven times but gets back up. The accuser says, yeah, but you're not a righteous man. But the advocate says, yes, you are. I came, I bled, I died, I hung on a tree, I went in a grave and I rose again three days later and I give you my righteousness so you have everything that you need on earth and in heaven to get back up. Come on, aren't you grateful for that? Hallelujah. So there you are, just like Joshua in the, court, in the courtroom, advocate, accuser. The accuser's just putting you on the stand and taking you to court and saying, this is all the things you've done wrong. This is why you're guilty. This is who you are. But Jesus, Colossians 2.14, he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all our sins, our stained soul. He deleted it all and they can't be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Are you grateful? You see, the accuser wants to continue to repeat these things and point his finger at your fall because he wants you to believe that you are those things. Because if you believe you're those things, you'll become those things and you won't become everything that God made you to be. You see, he understands that God created you on purpose and for a purpose. And it's the enemy's worst nightmare to see you get back up and step into those things. That's why the accuser points to our past, but our advocate points to our purpose. There's somebody that knows a thing or two about this in scripture, it's my boy, Peter. Peter is one of the 12 disciples. I just wanna give you a little background about how he came to know Jesus in the first place and what his time with him looked like. First of all, Peter was a professional fisherman, okay? That's what he did for a living. And so Peter was out fishing one night, all night long through the night, and he caught nothing. 
I feel you, Peter, that's why I don't fish. I don't catch anything. I go out on the boat, I catch nothing. I just stand there with a pole in my hand waiting to catch something, I don't catch anything. I come in and I'm all defeated. I can really resonate with Peter in this moment. Am I alone? So there's Peter. One other person. Everybody else has better luck. Righteous living, good for you. So Peter, after a long night of catching nothing, he's standing on the shore and he's washing his nets. He's cleaning up for the day. And up walks this man. And he just gets right in his boat and he says, come on. He's like, what? Come on, come out here. And they go out on the boat and he says, put your net down the side. Just wanted to remind you, Peter's a professional. He knows what he's doing. He's telling this guy, like, I've been out here all night. There's nothing in the water. He says, put your net down the side. And he does so. And guess what happens? Immediately, his net becomes so full with fish that it starts to break. And Peter's initial reaction, he says, get away from me, master, for I'm a sinful man. Pointing to his past, pointing to his sin, pointing to his mistakes, pointing to his failures. But I want you to notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, come and follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. When we're looking at our past, when the accuser's pointing at our past, we see our advocate and he's pointing to our purpose. He says, I have something for you to do. So we follow Peter throughout the gospels and he does some incredible things. He sees some incredible things. He's one of the first disciples to be recruited by Jesus and he's actually in the inner circle. You see, there's 12 disciples, but there's three that are really close to Jesus, meaning that Peter was allowed to see and experience things that even some of the other disciples weren't able to see and experience. Peter's the guy that stepped out of the boat and walked on water. He walked on water, actually. And then Peter was the first one of the disciples to have revelation from God about who Jesus really was. So we see this scene where Jesus is with the disciples and he's talking to them and he's saying, hey, like, what's everybody saying about me? What's, what, what are people saying that I am? In fact, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one that pipes up and he says, you are the Messiah. And notice what Jesus says to Peter. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. Pause there for just a moment. This is significant because Peter's birth name is Simon. So in this moment, Jesus is giving Peter a new name. Peter, your name is now Peter, which means rock. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You see, he gives Peter in this moment, this incredible purpose, this incredible calling. He says, Peter, I'm gonna use you to build the church, not just in your lifetime, but for generations and millennia to come. I'm gonna use you in a mighty way. He gives him this incredible purpose. Jesus was man, but he was also God. So we have to remember that when he's giving Peter this purpose, he knows full well that Peter is just about to fall. This is significant because a lot of times I think that we surprise God when we fall. We think that our mistakes surprise him, catch him off guard, that he can't work with it. No, he planned it into the whole thing, okay? He's not surprised by it. He's not surprised by Peter's fall and he's not surprised by yours. One of the last instances we see between Peter and Jesus before Jesus is arrested and crucified and Peter denies him is found in the upper room 
Jesus is there with all of his disciples and they have just taken communion for the first time. It's this sweet, holy moment when Jesus speaks up in Luke 22 and he says this, Simon, Simon, remember that's Peter, Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Sift you like wheat is an expression for shaking someone apart or breaking a person down. So you have to realize that our accuser, he is our tempter. He wants to knock us down and then he wants to keep us down and then he wants to break us down. That is his whole scheme. That's what we're seeing with Peter. Satan and Jesus, accuser, advocate, they both know what's about to happen. And Satan's saying to Jesus, let me at him. Let me have him. I'm gonna break him down. I'm gonna keep him down. In direct contrast, what does the advocate say? The accuser says, I'm gonna sift him like wheat. The advocate says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you have gotten back up, Watch this, strengthen your brothers. I'm not surprised about what you're about to do. I'm not surprised that you're about to fall. And when you get back up, strengthen your brothers. He gives them purpose. The accuser points to the past, he points to the fall, but your advocate points to the purpose. Strengthen your brothers, follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. I'm gonna build my church on your shoulders. I'm gonna use you to do incredible things. And then Jesus is arrested, he's taken off, he's crucified. Peter denies that he even knows Jesus after all of that. After everything that he saw, after walking on water, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. And he feels so guilty about it. He has so much shame about it. Fast forward, it's not the end of the story as we know. Jesus raises from the dead. He comes back to meet with his disciples. And there's a profound moment that we see in scripture when Jesus comes back to Peter. Let me set the scene. Maybe it sounds familiar. Peter's out on a boat all night. Doesn't catch a single thing. God bless you, Peter. I feel that, Peter. Why do you do this to yourself, Peter? They're out there on the boat and Jesus walks up to the shoreline he says, hey friends, you caught anything? And they're like, no. Like, thanks for pointing that out. Thanks for rubbing that in. And he says, we'll try throwing your net on the right side of the boat. And they're like, whatever, I mean, might as well try. Throws his net on the right side of the boat, boom. They catch so many fish that they can hardly haul it in. I can only imagine that Peter in this moment is like, oh, I've seen this before. Oh, I've been here before. I know who that must be. And then John says, it's the Lord. And he gets out of the boat, he jumps off the boat and he swims to the shore and the rest of the disciples come to the shore and they have this sweet reunion moment where they're sitting around the fire with Jesus, breaking bread together and talking, which is such a beautiful thing. But I have to imagine maybe a little awkward. Like, you know that moment after you like, like do something not cool to somebody and then you see him again for the first time? It's like a little awkward. There's sort of an elephant in the room. There's some ice that needs to be broken. I want you to notice how Jesus breaks the ice. First of all, he comes back to the very beginning, which I think is just this beautiful symbolic reset button. Like I'm coming back to the place where I first met you, Peter, where I first called you. And here I am again. And he asks Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, of course I do, Lord. Then feed my sheep. 
purpose. He says, Peter, do you love me? Again, a second time. Yes, I love you, Lord. Then feed my lambs, purpose. And then a third time, he asked Peter, do you love me? One time for every one of his denials, every one of his falls. Of course I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. He is not concerned with your past mistakes because he paid for them. He made a way for you to repent and accept the grace that's been given to you so that you can step back up into your purpose. The accuser points to your past. The advocate points to your purpose. When I was in college, I had a season where I felt a lot like Peter. I had one foot in the world, doing, saying, acting a certain way that was not right. And I had another foot in the church, doing, saying, acting what I knew was right. And I lived like that for a little while all the while the voice of the accuser began to get louder and louder in my head. I knew that I was doing wrong. I knew that I wasn't right. I knew that I was living in some unrepentant sin. And I started to believe that who I was, my identity was all of the things that I've done wrong. That's who I became. And I felt so heavy. I felt like a hypocrite. I heard the accuser say, you're such a hypocrite. And I started to believe it. And I'll never forget, I was home over a break and I was in the car with one of my best friends and he was dropping me off and we pulled into my driveway and he just looked at me and asked how I was doing. And for whatever reason, I just opened up and unloaded on him and I told him about everything. I said, I can't believe that I'm, I can't believe some of the things that I've done, some of the things that I'm doing. I can't believe that I would have the audacity to do this and, and serve God at the same time. God can't use that. He can't use me. I gotta get out. I gotta stay down. And I'll never forget how my buddy Corbin, Corbin, if you're watching this, I love you. I don't even know if you remember this moment. He just looked at me and he smiled. And he began to speak life over me. He began to remind me of my true identity. He began to remind me that my identity is not the summation of my mistakes, that Jesus loves me and he calls me and he's called me to a great purpose, a great calling, a good work to do. And that he's made a way for me to easily repent, turn from those things that I was doing wrong and accept the grace that's been freely given by God in the first place and walk in the purpose that he's given me. I'll never forget that moment because it was a turning point for me where I feel like I truly understood this gospel for the first time. He loves me. He loves you. So much that he came and died on a cross for you to pay the price for you, to reach out his hand and pick you back up. And now, because I had this moment where my, my buddy, honestly, my friend Corbin, he helped me silence the voice of the accuser and amplify the voice of the advocate. I was able to step into the things of God, into the purpose of God. It's what brought me here in the first place where I'm getting to do what I love to do. And we're seeing God move through this house and what an honor and a privilege it is to get to be a part of it. And I don't know who I'm talking to right now in the room at Boynton or online, 
but you feel like I felt, you feel like Peter felt, you feel like you are knocked down and you are stuck in this feedback loop and it's too heavy and you can't get up. I wanna speak a better word over you today. I wanna speak life over you today. God loves you. He's not surprised by your fall. It didn't catch him off guard when he hung on that tree. He saw the whole tab and he paid it in full. He made a way for you to get back up. It's so important that we do it. Come on. We're in the stadium and there's two sides. There's heaven and hell and they're both waiting. They're both watching. They're both wanting different things for you. It's so important. It's so important that you get back up. Your family needs you. Your kids need you. Dads, your kids need you to get back up. It's time. Today's the day. Get back up. Repent. Accept the grace of God and step in all he's called you to be. Moms, you've got to get back up. Your kids need you. Your friends need you. Just like I needed my buddy Corbin. Your friends need you. It's not like Corbin had never fallen before in his past, but he got back up so he could strengthen his brother. The church needs you. You've got to get back up. The world needs the church and the church needs you. Why? Because you are the church. You are the hands and feet. You are the salt and light. You are the hope of the world. If you don't get back up. If you don't get back up, you will never step into the plan and the promise and the purpose that God Almighty has preordained for you to do before the foundations of the earth. You'll never step into it. But if you do, if we do, will change the world. That's the plan. That's the design. What a privilege. Why does your accuser wanna keep you down? To keep you from the plan. <laughs> to keep you from your purpose. To keep you from his worst nightmare. About 10 months ago, our worship team, we went on a retreat, a songwriting retreat. And it was such a special time. We got an Airbnb up in Stewart and just a little getaway for us to kind of seek the Lord and write some, some songs. And the first night was such a special, sweet time because we just opened it up in worship and in prayer that the Lord would give us songs to sing, that he would download to us the, the words that he wanted to be on our lips, on the lips of Journey Church. What is the songs that you want us to sing, Lord? And he gave us a lot of songs which I can't wait to share with you coming up in 2023. We're gonna be putting out a lot of these, these songs and this music, just a little teaser for you. I cannot wait for that. But one of the songs that he gave us was that night. It was about midnight and it was called Awake, which we sang this morning. And I believe that God gave us this song is just a, a song for our church about what's to come. And the bridge says, all sons and all daughters are taking their place. We're getting back up. We know who we are. We are rejecting the accusations of the accuser and we're stepping into our purpose. Sons and all daughters are taking their place. Filled with fresh power, the price has been paid. In Revelation, it says that the accuser was cast down because of the blood of the lamb the price that was paid in the word of our testimony, because Jesus died on the cross, we are filled with fresh power. The price has been paid. Aren't you grateful? Your bride, your church, 
Your bride is now ready, your church is awake. All signs and all wonders are now commonplace. We're stepping into the plan and the purpose of God because we know that if we can silence the voice of the accuser and amplify the voice of our advocate, we can step into the plan and purpose that God has for us as a people and as a church so that we can go and be the hope of the world. We can be a city on a hill. We will change the world. Are you with me? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you meet us with truth and with kindness, God. Thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, not your anger, not your wrath. It's your kindness. You call us to step back up, to get back up, freely giving us grace, freely giving us love, freely giving us a new set of clothes, a new identity. Father, I just come against the schemes of the accuser right now. Every lie that's being spoken over anybody hearing these words, maybe it's in the future, you're you're watching this message in the future, wherever they are, whenever they are, God, I reject and rebuke the schemes of the devil because he is a liar and he's an accuser and he's operating on old news. The blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus has been spilled and made us right. And so we stand firm on that, God, and we just step into the purpose that you've given to us. God, would you give us boldness? Would you give us confidence? Would you help us to see that you are on our side and in you, we can do anything. We can get back up. Father, we love you. We praise you. We enthrone you. In Jesus' name.